for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right. I am blue, you are bright and shiny in my mind You got me loving, hating crazy indecision in my mind Welcome to the Fall Podcast, where the focus is on deer hunting, tips, tricks, tactics, and stories from across the Midwest. And now, here is your host, Aaron Blisey. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and this is episode number 19. Today, I've got a really cool guest on. His name is Jake Elinger. He is the owner of Habitat Solutions 360, and I've got to know Jake over the last eight or nine months because I had Jake come out and help me with the one-acre farm, and you know I really want him to help me with a plan and to really try to figure out how we can make this this farm the best it could possibly be i think we really hit a home run with it we'll see coming here you know the next couple falls and and really see how this hinge cutting takes off now i can tell you within the last you know eight or nine months since we've cut it it has been unbelievable the deer love it i've been talking about it on all these podcasts the deer are taken to it and they they're calling that place home and a big reason is because i'm staying out of there as well but everything we've done with it Everything he's told me to do, I've done it, and it's really working out so far. So we'll find out next month, you know, when October 1st hits, and I can finally start hitting the woods. But as of right now, just a little update. You are going to be listening to this when I am on Dropped. I recorded this interview with Jake last week, but I'm recording the intro to this right now, and in two days, I'm leaving on Dropped. You're going to be listening to this, and I will be dropped in northern saskatchewan with chris and casey and lee we're going to be spending the next 25 days up there now for the next three or four weeks you're not going to be getting a podcast after this one i'm sorry but uh we're going to be in some remote areas and i was going to get some pre-recorded ones but i just really didn't want to do that because i really want to bring you guys like up to date kind of thing so it's going to take a little hiatus for about three weeks but when i get back in the first week of october we're going to pick right back up with things this will be the part one of the Jake Elinger 
series and I'm going to do another part afterwards and you know I've got a lot more questions with Jake but today we're going to cover his scent control regimen which is just crazy he is so precise for his scent control and it's unbelievable so I wanted you guys to hear that we talk about a big deer he killed last year in Brutus and the hinge cut that he designed on his farm and a lot more to be honest with you and you know I really think you guys could take a lot from Jake he's really knowledgeable and he's been hunting a long time and he's been doing this habitat work for a very long time as you'll hear once we get into the interview as well so I really hope you guys enjoy this and again I'm sorry you're not going to hear a new podcast for you know the next three weeks after this but you can always go back and start listening to the other ones if you haven't heard them that'd be much appreciated and uh yeah, when I get back from dropped, I will uh, definitely keep rolling these things out through the fall. So I hope you guys enjoy. So sit back, relax, and uh, I'm going to get Jake on here. All right, we are back, and uh, I'm with a special guest today, a guy that I've got to know over the last year and, and have a, had the pleasure to uh, to get to know, um, Jake Elinger. Uh, Jake, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great, Aaron. Uh cool high pressure sunny day today uh temperatures are down so yeah life is good yeah and you know the last couple mornings my temperature in my truck has said like 50 52 degrees and it's like man the fall is coming and i i can't wait i know all the hunters out there that you know can't hunt until october they are chomping at the bit just like i am oh yeah yeah definitely love that was uh like this time of year when you get that 50 degree morning it sure makes you your mind wander doesn't it yeah it really does because you know it's right around the corner i mean you got college football and nfl football starting and you know it's starting to get a little cooler and the deer is starting to shed that velvet and it's just it's a good feeling it's my favorite time of the year hence why i named my podcast the fall so (laughs) that's a great segue so uh well you know before we get too far like i do with all my guests, I would like you to give like a, a little bio on yourself and kind of let everybody know who you are and, and what you do. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm uh, Jake Ellinger, and uh, I own a business uh, called Habitat Solutions 360. It is a habitat consulting uh, company where I am hired by landowners and hunters to help them manage their habitat to reach their goals. And that can be anything from Hey, I've got 160 acres, and I want to see, hold, and harvest mature bucks. Or I've got uh, 28 acres, and I've got a, a young son and daughter, and I just want to have a few deer to put meat in the freezer, you know, right up into And there are some properties I manage that are huge, you know, they're four or 5,000-acre properties. And it's, you know, trophy management. And so uh, I try to help everybody reach whatever their goals are, uh, through a multitude of uh, different techniques I've learned over the years, you know, in habitat management. And that is just, you know, that's such a broad subject, and we'll get into some of those details later. But uh, but I do a very detailed uh, service. Uh, a lot of it is boots on the ground, and some of it involves using my equipment, and a lot of it in planning and sketching and, and things like that that I use to point people in the right direction so they don't have to make all the errors I made 30 years. Yeah, and how long how long have you been doing this, and, and kind of how did you get into it? Well, um, professionally, I think the business is going to turn, let me see, this is 2018. I think it's going to be 17 or 18 years this year. Okay. Uh, and, and I'll tell you how I got into it. <clears throat> and and uh, 
especially for all the Michigan people listening, you know, hunting in Michigan is so, uh, uh, so challenging compared to any of the TV shows and magazine articles that you that you read 20, 30, 40 years ago about big bucks. And I just wanted to see a big buck, you know? Right. And, and I, I bought a, uh, I call a small farm, a 67 and three quarter acre farm here in Northwest Lenawee County. It happened to be a property that I killed my second ever deer on, uh, as a young, you know, as literally a high school kid. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to buy this property. I, I walked all over it, played on it when I was a kid. And, it, and as the years, and that that was 1981, actually, uh, December of 81, my wife and A and I purchased this farm. And as the years went by and I hunted it, uh, it, I didn't, I mean, I did not know much about habitat. I was lucky enough to have some great parents that taught me all kinds of trapping and small game and you know, I can recognize about any tree and, and shrub and grass species that grows in this part of Michigan. Uh, <clears throat> but literally, I just wanted better hunting. So I started trying and testing and developing techniques. And, and you know, this was pre-internet. And so there was very little habitat information available to anyone, especially like myself. So a lot of trial and error. And, uh, you know, uh, you learn... Uh, best from your mistakes, but you also learn from your successes. And I just moved along. And as the years went by, I just kept trying more and more out of the box kind of techniques and tricks. And probably, oh, by the early to mid 90s, I had figured out the importance of bedding and the separation of bedding from does and bucks, and then how important food is, and then, uh, you know, figuring out scent control and my access. And uh, so, that's kind of how I got into this. It was literally because I, I had no other choice, okay? <laughs> right. Now, was there a time when you were, you know, you bought the you bought the ground that you have, and was there a time when you started doing the habitat improvements where it was like the first aha moment where something worked that you, you know, manipulated or planted or, you know, what what was that aha moment? And, and how many years into the farm did you finally get that? You know, um, I'm going to say the first real aha moment was, let me see, I bought it in 81. So this probably would have been about, in 1986, I killed a really cool mature buck on this property. And uh, second heaviest deer I ever killed. He field dressed three days after I killed him in the uh, 236, I believe. Oh, wow. That's a monster eight point. Up. That's Southern Michigan, for so everybody does know. Jake's located yeah. in Southern Michigan. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. And and he uh, he he didn't score all that well, but just a giant body, and and that is what you know. Uh, I am even though I'm in Southern Michigan, people. Oh man, you're in that giant buck area for whatever reason. I am. Uh, I deal with a lot of uh, substandard type genetics. I've killed some nice old bucks, but none of them score one seventy. You know. But anyways, uh, <clears throat> I think right around 85, I had killed this buck, and he had, he had crossed this swamp crossing, and I was just learning about bedding areas. And so after I had killed that deer the following year, um, that would have been 87, I think, 86, 87, I, there was a peninsula that I knew about on this farm, and every time I would walk in there, there'd be scrapes and rubs, and there were these cedar trees in there. And we'd had a... Uh, a really bad ice and wind storm the year before. And you know how you get ice on trees, and if it doesn't warm up, the trees kind of bend and try to touch the ground. 
And what happened, we had a lot of ice, and these cedar trees bent in a big arching form. And because it never got warm, uh, probably, you know, normally you'll get two or three days of sun afterwards. Well, that didn't happen. And so these trees became permanently bent in an arch. And there was about six or seven of them out on this peninsula. And what I found right away is bucks were bedding on Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I threw bow hunting and then just walking in and jumping deer like a dummy that I was back in those days. I didn't know any better. Uh, I, I discovered they were bedding and I, and, I, and I was smart enough to see the impressions in the ground and the hair and the, and the rubs and the, and the large droppings. I knew, you know, this was an area of bucks frequented and hey, they bedded here. So I, I started hunting back off of that area and, and hunting bucks under a transition and also does. And I wasn't all that selective back in those days. Uh, but what I did is uh, I, I was cutting firewood at the time for, for uh, you know, for heating back in those days, you know. So I was out there one day after after cutting firewood, and I said, I'm just going to start cutting trees and see if I can get them to lay over. And I had, I had actually read uh, in a, a deer and deer hunting magazine, I can't think who wrote the article, but that was the first mention of hinge cutting. And, and I'm not sure, I don't think they used the term hinge. They called it something else, but it was cutting parsley through the tree. And so I started to emulate that. And I went into a different location and did that. And the following, I still remember the following October, it was right around Halloween and I was just off of it. I had the most incredible deer hunt of my life. All these bucks and does coming and going. And of course I didn't kill a deer. I remember I I blew an awesome opportunity shot like all of us do when you got a big deer around. (laughs) but, I mean, that was the aha moment. It was like, my gosh, these deer have streamed in and out of that area that I cut those trees. And it wasn't but uh, maybe a third of an acre. Okay. But it was constant deer traffic. Yeah. And I thought, wow, man, <laughs> this is really something, you know. Yeah. And it was from, from then on that I started being a little more aggressive about it and really looking into it. And that was probably, my, you know, from a, from a habitat management. And I didn't realize at the time that, what I was doing was letting the sun in and creating early successional growth and creating side cover and overhead cover. I didn't real, you know, I doubt now I know all these things and, and offer this to all my clients to try to get people to understand the intricacies of the whole habitat management methods in timber. But that's what was going on. And uh, to this day, that, that has grown to about a five to six acre hinge cutting timber stand improvement area that is just swarming full of deer at this moment that we speak. That's awesome. uh, Yeah. So that was, that was it, Aaron. Yeah. And you know, and you and I've been talking quite a bit here in the last, you know, eight months or so. And, and, uh, you know, I had my aha moment this year when you helped me out. So for everybody to know, I've, I've been talking about this one acre property I have, actually it's an 80 acres of farm ground, but it's got one acre of timber on it. So I called Jake, back last winter and we came up with a plan he came up for a day and you and cole and i went out there and hinge cut one acre i mean it within the one acre but um that was my aha moment once you know once the winter went on and the does really started moving into bed and now i found three buck beds in that one acre um and that's when it really started hitting me this spring and summer and i'm like wow this really works because you always read about it and hear about it and everything now i it's starting to come full circle whether i kill something in it or not is 
to be you know to be seen here hopefully soon and we'll get into that but um for everybody out there that has like a smaller piece of ground this is like feasible to do on on any size acre i feel like to do you know hinge cutting and make your habitat even better because i I've been from afar and watching these bucks that I have on this farm, and it's unbelievable. I've got three and a half year old deer, and I've got a four and a half year old deer staying on this farm. Now it's going to disperse here because you know the velvet's going to come off, and then they're going to start getting territorial. So I'm just hoping one of them will stick around, or in the rut, you know, one of those deer will come back, knowing that this is like a thicker area, and the doe is like to sit in here, and they're going to scent check it. That's what I'm hoping. So now from Jake, now that I explained it, can you kind of like give your overview also through that whole process that we did with the one acre? Yeah, sure, uh, Aaron. You know, um, I, I guess what I'll say to start with, one of the most challenging projects I have had because one acre is difficult. I don't care how good you are with scent control, uh, uh, you know, thermos there's so many dynamics that uh, because what you're going to do is you're going to concentrate deer activity into that one acre so we had talked on the phone and i, I drove up there and met you and, and said yep i'm going to bring my equipment and you had done some uh some relative cutting in there before and uh, so i go in and i try to analyze what's going on where are the deer using Oh, you know, you gave me intel, you know, certain times of the year, the bucks come through here, certain times of the year, the does and bucks come yep. from this side. And so, you know, you had, you had really good information for me. And so after I walked in there and, and looked around and saw what was going on, I just realized that you needed more of that canopy to come down. You needed more early successional growth. And with some of the larger trees that you had there, there was some great opportunity to what I call kind of segment and compartmentalize that one acre to make it feel much bigger to deer. And uh, so I, you know, started the chainsaws and off we went and I kept some trees over and, and created some really good opportunities that I knew deer were going to be able to utilize. And, and uh, you, you know, it's uh, videos are great and hearing, hearing somebody talk about it, but there's nothing like boots on the ground and actually seeing it. Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, the more, the more I cut and, and I got into, you know, the network of trail systems and, and not only do you cut, but some of these trees are going to block normal deer movement. So you have to, you have to go back in and do what I call detail work. And so, so we did all that. I mean, we spent, my gosh, I'm going to say five or six hours cutting. Yeah, definitely. And I cut, I still, I still remember there was two or three really big trees that were connected from, you know, come up from one stump and they were, I'm going to guess in that 30. 30 inch or larger category yep. yep and they had some large limbs on them and i cut them high and they fell just right and we brought other trees on top of them and the moment i was in there i said this is going to be a, a real hub of deer activity here and here's why and uh, and then tried to kind of steer you along with what to expect after green up and you're going to get because you had a little creek system and some wet ground in there you were going to get some reed canary grass that was yep. going to come up and here's how you deal with that and we also discovered where one buck had been bedding, you know, based on wind and the and the open farm fields around that that, that one acre on an eighty acre that you, that you can hunt. Uh, we found the one location where this buck was choosing to bed there, anyways. But there's no way a hunter could get anywhere close to that deer. Right. Yep. And I think now you have 
set the progression to not only attract and hold some does and some fawn, but those bucks that have been in and out of there all summer long are going to are going to not only you know realize it's a good place to net check for does, but it's a great place for cover because you know here in Michigan on uh, November fifteenth is Orange Shirt Day, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and some things I really had to realize too was the access on this farm is very difficult. I mean, you're walking through fields and field edges to get to the spots to hunt. Now, um, you know, with the one acre, it makes it kind of difficult, but we made it a little better. Now, you you referred to that buck bed that we found. That buck has been back since. He That buck bed is so much more um, used now. It's It's unbelievable. The buck's still doing the same thing, which tells me, if that was the same deer that we had in the winter there, um, it tells me that that deer is not spooked, and that's a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah. In fact, he's real happy. He yeah, there. yeah. And yeah. and that was that was a reassuring aha moment as well. Now, the segue I want to make real quick is um, is the way that you are kind of trying to teach me to hunt this area. Now, for your clients, you were telling me. It's really hard for to get people to think the way that you do when you employ these or deploy these, you know, the hinge cutting and everything. And that's something I really had to grasp because it was a lot different than what I do. And what I mean by that is you said, you got to stay the heck out of there. Once we get done with this, you got to stay the heck out of there because they're going to call it home. You don't want to do anything. Now, I went in and got my stands up, got everything done early in the summer and I was done and I have not been back since. Um, and I can tell from afar when I'm glassing, it is 100% working. These deer absolutely love this. And now I'm going to tell you a little secret scenario. It's been a bean field. The property has been a bean field the last two years. Last year, I would drive by this field at least once a day, like try to go by at night to try to see if there's any deer on the beans. I never, cause I keep a journal. I never one time saw a deer out in these beans at night during the summer. When you think all the deer should be out this year, it's a different yeah. story. They are all over. And I feel like that has something to do with it. I'm not back there all the time now. That's one thing, keeping the pressure off. And now I just got to wait, you know, for the right time to go in there this, hopefully October and and try to get an arrow in one of those deer oh man so exciting so yeah you're already seeing all the positive changes which i told you you were going to see happen and it is a different method of hunting because it's very strategic you you you, the habitat's built the deer want to be there for a, a number of different reasons and so you as a hunter you have to be a lot more precise about your entry and exit and wind direction and your level of scent control and then time of year. I mean, everything, yep. but once you're right, you're going to have the most incredible hut. Right. I can't wait for that picture. Yeah. You and, know? you know, and I've already, you know, I'm in farm country in this and you know, you've been there, so there's not a lot of timber around me, but, um, I'm, this isn't a spot I'm looking to go and see 40 deer a night or even 15 deer a night. This is a spot where you're probably going to get probably skunked or see one or two deer here and there, but the deer that you're going to see is going to be the right deer, I feel like, in the right scenario. Yes. Yep. That's, that's just it. It's going to be the right deer, and it's going to be where you are now in a position 
to capitalize and get an arrow into him. Yep. Yeah. I'm excited for it. And like I was just kind of telling you before we started recording, I'm leaving on Dropped with Chris and Casey here in the next week, and we won't be back until the 5th of October. So literally the whole month of September, I mean, it's I haven't been I haven't been in that wow. woods in a couple months, so it's it's going to make it easier for me to not go in there. <laughs> if uh, if the dear gods could treat you well, and the the first evening hunt you have happens to be post cold front northwest wind high pressure, um, you will absolutely see. Okay, it will happen. Yeah. Uh, what do you feel? Because you know archery hunting, especially early season, you know they're they're pretty sensitive deer. You know. But, uh, yeah, let's hope it all works out because it could just be uh, great. And, and, you know, you're pretty excited because you've got some age class. Yes, that's that's the biggest thing is my age class. My age structure has moved up quite a bit. I mean, I'm seeing more three-and-a-half-year-old deer now than I am two-and-a-half-year-old deer, which I like, you know, and I do have some good two-and-a-half-year-old deer, some good up-and-comers. But the three-and-a-half-year-old deer, I've got five three-and-a-half-year-old deer on that farm this year. Now, whether they stick around or not is is a whole other story, but all I need is one of those deer, you know. Uh, you know, we're just, we're literally two weeks from shift, you know. It's going to yeah. start happening yep. now, you know. Once, it start, once that velvet peel uh, takes, you know, who knows. But uh, on the other hand, if it doesn't happen in early season for you, I, I absolutely know you'll have a great story for me come the rut. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> they will be there, you know, because the does will be there. Right. And uh it, it's going to be great. So it, it was, it was very challenging. It's, it's just so much fun working with you and hearing your story. And, and like you said, uh, when you started, we've, we've talked on and off on the phone, you know, for the last eight months, you kind of keeping me up to date of what you're doing. And, uh, it's, it's going to be fun. You know, you're going to, you're going to see exactly how well it works. Yeah. You know? and, and it's, it's up to you now. Yep. Okay? But, uh, you know, you talked about, uh, the one thing that I, I discussed in detail with you was you've changed things enough to where your intrusion is going to have a huge impact. Huge impact, yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's the hardest one for most of my clients to deal with. You know, they love everything I talk about until I start telling them how little they can hunt it. Right. And that's the thing, you know, when people buy a farm or have a farm, they want to enjoy the farm too. But it's oh, yeah. they also got to look at the fact that, what do you want to get out of this farm? Do you want a farm where, you know, it's it's something that your family goes and does and rides four-wheelers through it or, you know, walking trails, all that stuff? Or is it a farm that you really want to, you know, have to hold deer and, and, and have good hunting? They're two different things in my eyes. And that goes with the hinge cutting too. Hinge cutting, it looks absolutely terrible. Like to, to an aesthetic, aesthetic pleasing, it does not look good. But it's what the deer loves. So it's either, do you want beautiful woods or do you want all these trees that look like, you know, they're falling over and everything, but that's what the deer loves. So, and I prefer the ugly look. <laughs> oh, so do I. You know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cause I, every time I see it, I just know what it can be. Right. Like, man, you have all this new growth here. These deer are going to love you for it. Well, firsthand, I mean, you've been telling me, but now firsthand I can see it and it's, it's unbelievable. I, I you made me a believer, honestly, and it's it's crazy. And like I said, I hope you know come this October, this fall here, things will be hopefully will be sitting behind a a, a good age class mature deer. Hopefully. Oh yeah, I'm 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 really looking forward to hearing how it works out for you. Yeah, you know, uh, 
there's so much you're going to, you're going to learn and gain so much more through this first season. Yeah. That, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, you should have high expectations because there's some, there's some great opportunity ahead of you. Yep. You know, so, yeah. Well, you know, I want to segue a little bit into, you kind of said it here a little bit ago, but you and I have talked about it in kind of great length just on the phone, but um, your scent control regimen. I feel like you've you've got a pretty precise scent co- scent control regimen. Can you can you kind of elaborate more on that? Sure, I will. Uh, it is it is elaborate, um, but I've found it to be number one essential. Uh, uh, someday you'll get a chance to see this farm, and you'll see that it is the most intensively managed woods and open fields and edges and screening and access. And because of that, I concentrate a lot of deer activity. And once you have concentrated deer in multiple age classes, your scent control game has got to come up if your goals are to kill older mature deer. If you're just looking for does and fawns and young bucks, hey, you can, you, you know, uh, you can about do anything and still get your opportunity. Right. But I'm a, a four and a half and year old uh, buck uh, hunter, uh, harvester, and I do also hunt mature does. Uh, so in order to do that, and I love to do it through archery equipment, uh, that means I got to get close and I don't need to, uh, I don't want them to know I'm there. So my scent control, I mean, everybody talks about showers, you know, man, yeah, shower. And I do, of course, I shower prior to every hunt. Probably the one detail that a lot of people are surprised when I tell them is I tell them when I, when I dry off the towel that I dry with, it's a special towel that goes through its, uh, its own hunter washer and dryer with no scent, no fancy, uh, smelly, smell good, freshness, feet, uh, scent on it. And so that towel that I dry with is an exclusive towel that gets changed out. I have three of them. I wash them, dry them in my own scent control area. They're hung in an ozone exposed room. And so I start right at that moment. From then on, and you know, and brushing your teeth and gargling with uh, peroxide and all that stuff that seems like, man, it, but uh, I have a routine, so I go through all this. And the moment I leave that shower, I go, I, I uh, walk out of the bathroom, go down a stairway right at the at the uh, doorway of my bedroom. It goes into my scent preparation area, which is in my walkout basement, and I have about a six foot by ten foot. Uh, ozone completely sealed room that I have ozone generator in there that runs 24-7. So all the clothing, whether that's socks, underwear, long underwear, regardless of the season, is exposed to uh, the ozone. And I start right out, I, I utilize zeolite, which is a lot like activated carbon. And the purpose of it is a very finely ground powder. And I put it completely over every inch of my body. And it is there to absorb human odor. So as I dress, I powder myself down. And I mean, I'm, I, if you saw me, I'm a dusty mess. Okay? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, it, and, and say if I put a T-shirt on, not only is the inside of the T-shirt dusted, but my, my body is and my armpits. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm just like everybody, as and I believe in the, uh, the set absorption carbon uh, outer layers but those are in my backpack and i do not put those on until i arrive to my tree that i'm going to hunt up okay and, and then i have a really elaborate situation with my boots i have a tote system with two to three pair of boots 
The bottom of that toad is about three inches of that zeolite powder. Every time I hunt, my boots get washed, scrubbed. The bottoms of those boots get treated with zeolite, and then they go into that tub. So say if it's the rut and I'm hunting morning and evening, but I'm taking a, a noontime break, then I will wear a separate pair of boots for the evening hunt compared to the morning hunt. Okay. And so there's nothing that goes in the woods with me that's in my backpack. I mean, there is no wallet, there's no watch, there's no leather belt. Anything that could have contaminated human odor is left at the house, okay? Yep. And my entire process, from the moment I take my shower until I'm walking it back into the woods to whatever section I'm going to hunt, it is everything about scent control, okay? I mean, I don't touch anything. My gear, my backpack, I mean, everything is is clean and covered with this zeolite dust. And uh, actually, after I arrive at the tree and put on my scent lock, when I get up 20 feet and I'm in my stand, then I reach into my backpack and I got a little pocket and I have a a uh, carbon activated, uh, basically, uh, it covers my mouth, okay? okay? So I breathe when you inhale and exhale, covers your nose and your mouth, so it's a face mask. And I utilize that, I believe, very strongly in that as well. And so it seems elaborate, um, but I'll tell you, I can walk into my into my chosen area at the right time and the right conditions, and these big old five, six, seven-year-old does can come through with their tribe of deer, anywhere from four to a nine or ten antlerless family groups, and walk right over where I walk in and they don't put their nose on the ground. They don't start smelling. They don't get nervous and lift that front leg up and act like they're going to, you know. And my goal is, is not to tip them off. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it is, I, I would call it extreme scent control. But it works very good for me. And I mean, you know, because the easiest deer to kill is a deer that doesn't know you're hunting them, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, that you, you do have a pretty elaborate system. And, you know, my question is, you know, that, that takes care of your body and your clothes. But what, what do you do with your bow or your weapon, you know, and your arrows, stuff like that? How do you make that uh, scent-free? So, uh, you know, I would say like right now, okay, this time, here we are. We're a month before my bow arrows have all been, number one, washed with hot water and baking soda, okay? And I'm and I leave them to hang. I've got a little, uh, got a little lean-to type shed at the edge of my, uh, where I walk out of my basement. And they've got, you know, I've got bow hanger hooks all screwed into this one two by four cross that goes across it, and so yeah. I hang my gear there. Okay. And after it dries, then I spray it down with those with those scent sprays, like you know your scent killer and yep. stuff like that. Okay. And and that's what I do, and and I do that routinely. If I hunt four or five times with that bow or gun, um, I wash it down, especially where my hands are touching. But uh, probably the one thing I left out about my scent control regiment is I have about a dozen pair of those just brown cotton gloves, mm-hmm. and I wear those gloves all the time. I'm dressing and touching equipment, and then when I finally get into my where I'm hunting. And I take those gloves off and I put on my hunting gloves, which are all been treated with, with zeolite and exposed to ozone. And because there is body oil, there's, there's oil that touches that's on your fingers. Right. 
and you know sometimes depending uh even though this is a 67 acre property sometimes i have to make a big loop to get to some of my you know exclusive rut stands which take me a mile to walk okay it's just about a mile to do that walk so man you know in my clothing i have to dress very lightly and put a lot in my backpack and then i dress you know once i get up in the tree just so i don't overheat and all those things yep. but you're going to sweat you're going to have it so it's all about bacteria and i'm okay. trying you know and i'm not going to claim that i am scent free and deer can't smell me but what I'm trying to do is, and I've seen it enough, and I've gotten, you know, just years of video footage of this. Uh, a deer will be 20 yards downwind. And they are not nervous. They aren't stopping their direction of travel. They may stop and kind of put their head up a little bit and kind of act like, oh, you know, maybe there's somebody here. And then they continue on. So in my own mind, I'm, I'm thinking they're smelling a human. They're saying that human is far enough away to not be an issue, and they move, continue on in their, their normal mode of direction of travel. And that's all I want. <laughs> You're <laughs> so right. I can get yep. them by. And then that big buck, he's behind her, you know, he's behind her 40 yards, and he comes in there, and he's not, you know, he's not on alarm because she's not on alarm, then I can get that shot. And mm-hmm. that's really all I'm trying to do. Now, like you, like you kind of just said, do you think that you're 100% scent proof? No, I don't. Do you think it's possible to get 100% proof? No, I don't think so. Yeah. But I think we can I think we can narrow it down enough to where you no longer have a negative consequence with the deer. Right, and I agree totally <laughs> with you, yeah. Deer have certain thresholds of comfort, right? Mhm. Anybody who's hunted any amount of time, you know, we've all been scent busted, sight busted. You've also had those times where they were a little bit nervous, but they moved on. You've had some times when they were pretty nervous, but they even continued to move on. And you've had those times they just walked right by, paid no attention to. Yep. So, so I'm trying to, to uh, you know, my, I just figure everything I do, you know, and it's accumulation of things, uh, really helps put me in the right place. And uh, I think one thing I can say about scent that I think a lot of hunters don't realize is I think one of the biggest damages a person can do that doesn't hunt multiple properties, he's got one place to hunt, whether he's getting permission or owns it or leases it or how how it works, is there's an accumulated effect of what you do to that property, the amount of scent that you leave and disperse onto the leaves and the grasses and the twigs. And over from from October 1st to Halloween, how many times you've hunted and how good you were with your scent control is either going to make those areas more difficult to see deer during daylight or you've been so good at it, you have not impacted it. And and I just know that people who don't pay attention to scent control have no idea what those deer are doing at 2.30 in the morning, smelling everywhere that hunter, everything he touched, nosing their way right to the tree stand, smelling the tree stand depth, the limb that he touched, where he leaned his bow, it, you know, and that just happens over and over and over again. And eventually these areas become no-go zones for deer during daylight out. Right. They, 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 there's a guy in here, We every three days we're smelling fresh human scent. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. You know, and, and I, I kind of discovered uh, this, uh, what was it, five, four years ago, I started using an Ozonics unit in the tree with me. And... It was one of those things that I was like, it's very gimmicky when it came out. And I was like, I'm, you know, it's expensive. I don't really want to spend the money to do it. And um, 
you're and I's mutual friend, Stephen Stockman. I was hunting with him four four years ago, and Stephen's like, you got to try out my Ozonics unit. Just take it in. I was at his house hunting in Missouri for for a week and he's like just use it i'm not using it because i'm you know he had to work for the week and he's like just use it and i want i'm interested to know what your thoughts were on it i used it for that week and honestly jake it made me a believer in the sense that i had i don't know how many times i had mature does come downwind to me and now they would put their nose in the air they would like try to smell me trying to everything would not blow could not figure it out and they would come by the stand and it, they, you know, they were on edge a little bit, but they never busted or nothing. So then I'm like, okay, I used it a little more that year, and I ended up killing a four and a half year old buck that that year. Um, and he came, he cut my downwind at the time, so I didn't kill him downwind, but he came by the stand downwind eventually. Right. And um, you know, at same thing, he was kind of like, what is that? But like, it wasn't a threat to him, so he kept going. And then I've killed two more four-and-a-half-year-old deer with that unit since then. So I got myself one, and I've been using it. And I'm I'm a believer, and it's going to be hard for anybody to tell me not because I've been able to kill what I think are mature deer using that unit. I don't know. Have you used an Ozonics unit, or do you, you know, what you do know, you think about it? I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up because I have so many different people I know in the uh, – hunting habitat outdoor industry and uh, they're gonna they're gonna be shocked when they hear what i have to say but i'm also a believer in it um i i will precursor a couple of things you and i both know a michigan deer and a missouri deer are two different animals 100 percent, 100 percent, right uh, i have hunted missouri once in my life and last fall i hunted uh, a really nice missouri farm that had some real good deer on it and uh, I had an Ozonics unit then, and because I had heard from so many other good hunters that really did everything that I currently was doing, scent control-wise, said, you know, I tried it, and, and, and we'll both admit, an Ozonics unit has, it can do great things if it's used correctly, right? Yes, yes. So under high wind conditions and swirly, gusty winds and things like that, or having it located, making sure it's drifting over your, your quote, scent cone which is difficult because hey the wind moves a lot correct yep uh, but used under the right conditions it is uh, it's another one of those those things in the arsenal that i believe in and so i have one and i bought one a couple of years ago and the first year i bought it i was three quarters into the hunting season and i just didn't want to upset my my arsenal but last year i started using it and i have found it so when i do what i do and then i have the ozonics unit Man, I'm telling you, these Michigan deer haven't got a clue what I'm around. I know. Okay. You know, and you just kind of brought up a point, too. I had a scenario in Michigan. Um, it had been 2016, and it was November 2nd. I was hunting. I was home from filming for two days in the rut. Um, Casey and I had come home, and I'm like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hunt. Well, there was this deer. I had already killed a three-and-a-half-year-old deer that year with my Ozonics unit with my bow. And I was going after another one on the same farm here in Michigan. And it was the only two deer I really wanted to kill on that farm this year, or that particular year. And I had went into, I was right on the edge of a bedding area. And I knew this deer was bedding in this cedar swamp because we had cameras along outside of it. And every picture we'd get with him is a daylight picture. And we knew he was, that was where he lived. 
my dad and I went down there. He was in probably 200 yards from me, and I, you know, I figured one of us would see him, if not kill him that night. We got in early, and this you were talking about the swirling winds and everything, and that this is where it really was the test. So that buck had followed a doe 40 yards just out of shooting range for me, right by me, and she bedded down downwind of me and he bedded down with her and they sat there for an hour and a half all night and I'm watching him at like 60 yards and I can't get a shot I can't do anything my hands are tied and the wind I was in like an iffy stand for the wind and the wind was like swirling and it would go right at him and then it would kind of go cut their nose a little bit and I'm like oh my gosh I just I need to like try to get down and back out of here because I do not want them to blow me but I remember like reaching up and every time I, the wind would switch, I would move my ozonics. So like, you know, I would try to follow the wind and I'm not saying it worked or not saying it didn't work or it worked, but they never spooked. They eventually just got up and kind of walked off. Now, I don't know what to take of it. And I'm not saying that they didn't, or they were sitting there because of the ozonics, but I'm going to say like it helped. I'm going to just say that helped, but I do agree with you. If you have a swirling wind, or high winds, it's it's kind of tricky to use. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, y- your story is really good because you were cognizant of the condition. You knew those deer were there, so you were you were monitoring the, the wind the best you could and moved the ozonics unit, and so it was buying you some time. Yes. And, and you know, and, and there's a lot of things, you know, you, could, you know we, we could do a, a completely different uh, podcast about wind. Right, know, yeah, yeah. You know, during high pressure, your scent is going up. During low pressure, it's falling down. There's so many different things. And so, anyways, you pulled it off, and good for you because, man, I'm telling you, if those deer, if she didn't know, you know, he was going to be next to her because it didn't matter where she was. Right, exactly. But if she'd have picked you up, she'd have been out of there. Yeah. And, you know, for everybody that's never used an Ozonics unit, and what I mean by moving it, it swivels very quietly. So it's on like a, it's on a pivot arm above you and I could just reach up and turn it just so ever so slightly. And, you know, they could have picked up my movement, but I was very careful of that, but it's very quiet and I could just really move it really silently and quick. Like, you know, 10 degrees or 15 degrees there every once in a while. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's a better, that's a truly is a better unit than, or a better condition than basically no wind. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Now, now you got things going on totally out of your control. You know, yeah. Thermals and stuff like that you can't sense. So basically, you know, with the scent, the scent control stuff, I really want to touch on that. But also, I, I want to segue a little bit here and get into some other things. You know, we're coming up on time after a little bit here, but we can spend a little time on yep. this stuff. And you know, you got to you got a pretty unique way of setting mock scrapes and scrapes in general. I was wondering if you'd elaborate a little more on your mock scrape setups. Oh yeah. You know, I've, uh, you know, I've been doing these for geez, you know, literally decades. I mean, I'm going to say I probably did my first mock scrape 30 some years ago. Okay. And, uh, literally, you know, it would be on a, on an existing deer trail or maybe a tractor lane that went into the woods and here, you know, and here was this, uh, young oak tree with a limb uh, coming off, you know, the base, uh, and it was up about six or seven feet. So I would just literally tie, a, a, you know, at that time, just uh, some binder twine or something like that, 
to that limb and pull that limb down to get it about shoulder to armpit high and, and trim it with some cut cutters. And basically I was just imitating scrapes that I saw on field edges in other parts of the wood. And so you can do it from any living tree that is along the edge of a food plot on a deer trail, uh, out in front of your stand somewhere, maybe where two, where two trails cross. And you can do it, you know, with, uh, Red oaks, white oaks, basswoods, uh, maples, uh, conifers. You know, they, they love cedars. I mean, they just scrape. It's all about, you know, scent communication and, uh, and uh, you know, scraping the, scraping the ground. And you know the whole story about that. So there's so many different ways you can do them. And uh, probably what's been super busy these last couple of years are everybody's into grapevines. You know, taking a grapevine, tying the grapevine onto a limb or putting a post in the ground and screwing a hole in the post put the grapevine in there and have it droop in a big arch so that it ends up approximately at that armpit shoulder height. Mm -hmm. And deer like some resistance. They like to push their head into it because they're using the preorbital glands and the penile gland and they're, they're just, you know, they're chewing on it with their teeth and then depositing scent. That's this huge, you know, pre-rut signaling that goes on that communicates from both uh, doe to buck about, you know, when she's finally getting into estrus. And, when do you start your mock scrapes? You know, I uh, right now, from from Labor Day on, I make sure I, I've got some work to do this weekend, and I will have all my scrapes as soon as bucks are going into velvet peel. I want all my mock scrapes set, ready to go, and and I leave them. And do you put anything in them? You know, I, I, I've tested multiple, all kinds of things. These days, I don't put anything in them. Um, you know, uh, if I've been drinking Gatorade for three hours working and then, and I've got to urinate, that's a pretty good, it's a pretty good starter. <laughs> uh, you, you know, all the, all the scientific experts say that they don't care if the urine comes out of a deer, a fox, or a man after about four hours or so, it turns to ammonia. So, okay. uh, so human odor could have, could have an effect if it was just a few minutes after you did it and a deer walks in there and, you know, he's not only going to smell the bottom of your boots, but he's going to smell the, the human odor in the urine. Probably, if, you know, if you're taking vitamins or on any kind of medication or something you ate. But aside from all that, I mean, you know, it's sort of like a, if you know anything about male dogs and uh, you got a neighbor and he, he drives up into the driveway to talk to your dad and he's got a boat trailer and there's a spare tire on that boat trailer and your dog walks right over there and lifts his leg and pees on it. And and 15 minutes later, the neighbor dog walks over there and he smells that tire and he lifts his leg and pees on it. Right. And yep. I think in deer, it's a lot of the same thing. Once once a deer has distributed scent and, and there's been any kind of rub urination going on, which trickles down into that scrape, you know, through that process, from that point on, any buck that's coming around here to get a whiff of it or, or you know, and they, they visually they see that limb where it needs to be too. Yep. So it's not only visual, but, but scent. So there's so many different ways you can do it, and I've done it. I've I've experimented in it. I've taken Norway spruce limbs and wired them onto oak trees in the middle of the woods just so when I was sitting in a stand, I could monitor it and see how the bucks use it, and they just use the heck out of them. That's crazy. So, you know, clearly they're not the smartest animal in the in the world because, <laughs> I mean, that's a trap. I mean, any, any, wood, any deer coming through the woods going to work, well, that limb hasn't been there at all. Now it's here. I'll, I'll go put my head in it, you know. Right, yeah. And, and uh, so it just goes to show that there's a lot of instinctual things that, that key deer to do certain things from a behavior standpoint. Yep. 
And, and, and that's my goal in the habitat management realm. I, I call it time management of your bucks. If, if you've got food plots and travel corridors and good bedding areas, you want dozens and dozens of mock scrapes to lead these deer along through a, a kind of plan, you know, from bed to food and food to blend uh, bed movement pattern, and then keep those deer busy. And especially during that pre-rut, during the rut, and then post-rut, you know, keeps those bucks coming back. You've got young bucks working scrapes. You've got older, mature bucks that may just set, check that scrape, uh, travel downwind of it. You know, they're the more the smarter, more mature deer that know that uh, in Michigan, this is a tough time to expose themselves. Yeah. But it's all very functional. And, and I put cameras on them. I gain a huge amount of intel. And, and I would say there isn't a buck I haven't killed in the last 10 years that I did not get intel about that buck's movement off of a mock scrape that I put up. Really? I could easily access, yeah. Now, do you have a, yeah. you know, here in Michigan, we've got to be basically perfect on everything we do when it comes into the woods. Now, do you, how do you set up your cameras on these mock scrapes? Is it, do you have a certain way or a tip or trick that you like to do just so the deer don't get tipped off by the camera or might booger them at all? I, I, I try to hide those cameras as well as I can in a multiple limb type tree, or I will attach limbs around it. And I also put it up high looking down. Say, okay. It wears some seven feet up staring down. And it's also in a, it's in, and if you saw my property, I have some really cool trail systems cut and, and mowed and manicured that I, I take my zero turn on and I, I mow them. And so I can, I have an electric cart and I can drive that electric cart right up there, stand on the back seat and uh, change out cards because I get terrible cell service, or I'd have one of those cell uh, cameras. Yep. I have awful cell service here, uh, especially back towards the woods, so I just it's just not reliable data. But but I do have a routine, and so not only do I put them up high, and I always am scent-free, and I wear those surgical gloves when I touch that camera, because I, I'm convinced in Michigan especially, these deer know all about cameras. And uh, as great as they are, they're probably our number, our biggest offense that most people use, yeah. too. And I, I'm starting to realize that a little more too with everybody I talk to, and you know, I I loved can I I still do like cameras, but I like getting inventory now and just seeing what the heck's there. But they have been certainly my number one crutch in the past, you know, five to oh, eight they, years. They've been oh. a detriment, honestly, to me. They've only, I mean, yeah, they are nice to know what the heck's there, like I said, but I check them way too much, and I'm just not disciplined enough to not go in there. So I'll tell you. Uh, during the during the fall, I'm trying to gain intel, and that intel for me is mature buck, uh, a target animal moving during daylight. So I, I'm I'm watching food plot edges and and mock scrapes. And over the years, I've got my three locations that I put cameras, and I check those cameras at noon. And, and, and normally, you know, on the weekend, but I do it at noon because normally at noon. Right up until before the, the major pre-rut, say from up up until Halloween, most of those mature bucks are on their belly in the bedding area at noon. Not always, but generally. So that's my safest time to get in and get out. I won't be bouncing deer, won't, you know. And uh, so I've had real good luck, and I get the intel that I'm looking for and the information, and that helps me uh, determine when I'm going to go into these these kill locations that I've built with my chainsaw. 
uh, to get in my stand to hunt that target buck and hopefully get an arrow in him. You know, we're right here and it's Labor Day, Labor Day weekend, and I wanted to pick your brain about, um, you know, some things that people could be doing right now that will benefit them coming for October 1st, whether that's shooting their bow or just making sure they're gear ready or doing something habitat wise. Do you have any sort of thing that people could take from it for right now that they could be doing? You know, yeah, right now we still have, you've got the next week to get your mock scripts set up. Okay. Yep. From now on, probably till the 5th of September, you're in probably pretty good shape. Uh, probably more field edge and travel corridors, I'd be, you know, after this weekend, I'd be really careful about entering any kind of bedding areas because there's a, there's a shift about to happen, and I'm actually noticing it right now. Uh, just had a buddy of mine not 20 minutes before uh, we started send me uh, a picture of a, a hard horn buck on his property. Not- yeah, and I'm, I have a friend that just got a hard horn buck on the 22nd of August. That was his first hard horn, completely, completely hard horn. Yeah, there, there, there's some shift going on. But aside from mock scrapes, um, I would say, I'd say another thing people don't do, and that's on my list this weekend, is I'm going to go to every one of my prime hunting stands, and I have a, a steel chainsaw with the three extensions on it, uh, and I'm going to trim out all my shooting range. And there's nothing worse to wait for that perfect November 7th day and, and you get in there and you've been there about 20 minutes and it's good in daylight and you're going darn you know I didn't realize that that limb that limb came down and right <laughs> away we, we've all been there right yep yeah yeah and so you know it's hard to prepare for everything but if you can you know you can do that now because the deer will allow you to do it it's not the end of the world and if you get it done this weekend and you've literally got two months before it's prime time to get in there and hunt those areas and hunt those stands. Right. And from a habitat standpoint, you can, uh, especially to say if it's somebody that's got a fairly new property and he's just trying to figure it out, he's got an area that's easy to get to off of an ag field, you can go in and hinge cut right now. Just go drop a bunch of trees, get some tops down, cut a couple of openings that deer can wander through, and then just back away from it. And right away, you're going to have deer in there. I mean, they're nosy. They're curious. Uh, you know, I, I swear deer deer relate to a chainsaw. I mean, it, it's it's the dinner bell. Because I know that there's now tops available that weren't available. And, and uh, it's definitely, you know, but, but you're pushing it. By doing any hinge cutting now, you can do it. And, and I've known guys that have hinge cut right into October and then killed deer there in November. So um, I just try, you know, for my own property to be, pretty hands-off after we get through the weekend of Labor Day. Yep. And, and you know, that that scenario you, you just uh, painted, I I had that happen to me last year. So Casey and I were in Iowa hunting, and we went into a spot. This was later October, and we were hanging a stand, and we had hinge-cut a couple trees right underneath of the stand. And we did this, like, mid-morning or, you know, mid-afternoon, knowing we were going to hunt that stand that night. Um, we were, it was kind of a fringe stand. It was one of our first sits of the year. We were just kind of looking and making, just scouting, just kind of seeing what the deer were doing that night. When we sat there, we had seven does walk right to our stand and eat on those trees that were cut. And we had like a mid 150 to 160 inch four and a half year old come in and, uh, not quite present us with a shot, but was coming with those does 
to eat on those on those trees it's crazy how they had just been cut that day and they come in they know i think it puts yeah. off an aroma that they can smell uh, too that they came right to the tree and they they ate on them you know I, i'm certain that once that tree is cut there's an aroma and they can smell it yeah so they're, they're coming to it and you gotta realize you know those trees that you cut you know there was all that incredible deer food that was however the top however tall 20 feet 30 feet you know it was out of their reach and now it's down at their level yeah and they're pretty happy. And that's <laughs> a like, and that's oh, the cool. thing in the sure, you know? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing in the one acre when when you and I went in there and Cole went in there to cut, we took all that food that was fifty feet up. Now it's right at the forest floor and deer are eating on those those uh woody brows like crazy. And previous years I've never had any sort of grasses or anything in that woods at all. Now it's like knee to hip height grass because the the sunlight's getting in, you know, right. everything's touching the forest floor, and it's it's crazy. But now I, I planted some clover in there um, a little while ago, and I don't know how it's doing, but uh, I will find out in October, and it's killing me not knowing how it's doing. I want to go in there and just look at it, but I got to stay out of there. Yeah, yeah, just, just, just you know, that that is such a sensitive area because of its size. Uh, yep. The best thing you can do right now is, is when you climb in the stand, you can see that bright green glow in yep. there yeah and you're, oh awesome yeah doing really well right <laughs> um so lastly we're kind of come up on time here and i got a lot of questions for you but i'm thinking as we're going i want to do a part two to this as well so this will be part one and i've got a whole okay. bunch of questions when i get back from dropped we'll do uh we'll do another one in october and we'll we'll hit on the rest of them so everybody else can get the full jake effect so but the last one i want to leave everybody with is you killed a very good deer last year brutus um and i want you to lay that that scenario out all the way from you know preseason to when you ended up killing them because you know a lot of my viewers they love hearing those stories and i love hearing those stories as well so if you wouldn't mind let's let's talk about brutus a little bit oh yeah you know um this was a really cool deer and, and uh you know i i've been blessed with uh you know, good health and, and a fun business and, and learning from my mistakes. But over the years, there's certain deer you recognize. You got antler structure markings on them. And uh, this was a really neat deer that I had passed, you know, from year and a half, two and a half. And when he was three and a half, he was very impressive. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it's really hard to pass a mid-130s deer in Michigan, okay? Right, <laughs> At yes. 10 yards. Very and, hard. <laughs> and, and I did. And so the following year, uh, and I actually did that with my nephew. My nephew was hunting with me. It was, it was muzzleloaders. It was the last day of muzzleloader season. And he, he had the best hunt of his life. And uh, he'd never seen the, the amount of does and bucks. And the conditions were right. And it was cold and it was snow. And we were on a food source. And 14 antlered bucks out in front of him. Killed his first deer of his life that night. But when Brutus walked up, I said, Ryan, he's off limits. Gosh, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. I said, this year I'm waiting to see what happens next year, but I got some great photos and video footage. So following spring, spring of 2017, I'm turkey hunting. And I normally don't turkey hunt just because my business is very active in, in turkey season. You know, it's usually around the 20th of April, and that's my prime time, and I'm everywhere uh, during that time. But anyways, I specifically made sure I was home for two days to try and hunt the opening of turkey season. So I go I go into that same exact food plot, set up my decoys. I'm leaning up against a white pine tree, killed a huge tom, as a matter of fact. After I shot that bird, I see a couple of does, 
And man, I see this just giant deer come walking out and he's just all bulked up and his neck is all swelled and his shoulders are huge. And he's got velvet antlers about four inches tall, as big around as a, as a coffee cup. And I'm like, holy smokes, is that a giant, you know? So k- killed a nice bird, got him out of the woods. But I, I because I had had a visual on this buck, uh, I came back in, in the middle of the day and hung a camera in anticipation of trying to get pictures. I did get pictures of this buck and some of the pictures just show he's got, he's just got muscles in his shoulder and in his neck. And, and he did, he came through the winter in great shape, really. And that's what it proved. So I nicknamed him Brutus from that point on. And then throughout the summer, I got some pictures of him in my bean field. And I, I have an apple tree that a yellow, delicious apple tree that drops real early in August. And I got pictures of him there but it was quite random. And then uh, once we got into this time of the year, he, he just fell off the map like all mature deer do. Uh, they, they go into velvet peel and who knows where they go. But I just, you know, I just was not getting pictures of him. And so there's a, a mock scrape that I always use. It's a tiny little hourglass food plot that's not 20 yards from water. And I, I've got a, a limb from a, actually it's a box elder tree. And I always have a huge scrape there every year. So I, I put my camera on there by the 1st of October, and, I, and he started showing up quite regularly from the middle of October on, but it was always at night. And by the time we got into, like, October 20th, he was, I mean, you'd get five, six pictures a night. Really? You'd get him at, at 10 p.m., then I'd get him at midnight, I'd get him at 2.30 a.m., and he was always working that scrape. I mean, he'd have his head up in that scrape just going nuts, and getting, you know, during the rub urination, he was, he was you know, he's... He knows his testosterone's building, you know, our photo period, our days are getting shorter. He feels this coming. And, and, and so he's getting ready, you know, he's working his scrape and he's out. And of course, he's a mature buck, so he's going to choose to head to the food sources after dark, right? Yep. And uh, sure enough, uh, I killed him on, the, uh, on November 8th. So the Saturday before that, which was probably the 4th, I, I pulled my, my cards from that with great anticipation and I was getting lots of daylight photos of younger deer up and comers two-year-olds had one three-year-old I called uh, Mr. Uh, what I call him uh, Mr. Mr. Perfect and uh, I was getting him during daylight but then here's here's Brutus 10 minutes before dark working the scrape and then the next day I've got him at 20 minutes after daylight working the scrape and I can and I can I, I set my camera on a three-shot burst mode and so i'm getting i can get the direction of travel i go okay i know what bedding area he's coming and going to okay this is great so from now it's the right time and we're talking it's november 4th the the moon we're going into a full moon phase and as as many people despise full moon i love them okay i've had nothing but great hunting under full moon so I'm a real moon watcher, and I'm also a weather watcher. So I look ahead on the weather, and I see that on November 8th, we're going to have a big drop in temperature and a rise in pressure. It's going to be a day after cold front. So on November 7th, we're going to have a cold front roll through. And the 8th is going to be a post-cold front with, again, low temperature and, and high pressure. And what I mean by high pressure is somewhere between that 30.1 and 30.35. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and I've got a website I go to that shows it. And then I look at moon position, and I see on that day, November 8th, we were going to have a setting moon at around 1130 
that morning. So I tell my wife the evening of November seventh, I go, you know, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go hunt right or right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go hunt Brutus in the morning and I might I might be gone all day because I said we're gonna have a midday moon setting and I'm going in and I'm gonna stay there until I kill him. And just confident as could be, I'm gonna go kill this deer. And so sure enough, I wait. One of the things I do have done lately is during this time of the year, and I call this pre-rut. We don't have a lot of chasing going on, but a lot of seeking is going on. Yep. So I wait right until daylight because I had to walk about a quarter to a little more than a quarter mile back into some really good cover, past some food plots. So the sun's turning pink and I'm walking in and I'm able to get all the way into my stand uh, without bouncing a deer. Okay. I just, everything's right and i'm through the cover and i got really you'll see i have really good entry and exit and i have trees that i've planted that shield me from food plots and i can get right into where i i get so the the place i i'm hunting i've created a hundred yard barrier and at the end of that barrier i've got a triple oak white oak tree with a tree stand 20 feet in it and out in front of that barrier about 35 to 40 yards is a one acre hinge cut with all kinds of networks and openings and planted with chicory and clover. So this is a pinch. And so I'm looking east in this in this stand. So that means the northwest wind is coming from my left. And my goal for hunting that location was I figured Brutus was going to try and get downwind of that bedding area to scent check dope. Yep. And I created this gap and I've got mock scrapes all around there. And so I get in and I think I had one or two young does and young bucks come by in that first two and a half or three hours, a bunch of turkeys. And I expected very little deer movement until it got about 11 a.m. I just knew with the moon, the woods is going to explode. So about 20 minutes to 11, all of a sudden, here comes the deer. I got does, I got fawns, I got young bucks, I've got got some nice three-year-olds coming through. And at one time, I had seven antlered bucks out in front. Wow. And I got about a 125-inch three-year-old working a mock scrape not 20 yards away from me. And he turns his head and just stops and stares to the north. And I hear something in the leaves, and I look up, and here comes Brutus. <laughs> he's, he's, and he's coming with a purpose. You know how those mature deer are. He's yep. not walking. He's not running, but he's closer to running than walking. Right, today. yep. He is, and he's coming from the bedding area to the west that I suspected he'd be bedded in. So he has gotten up. He feels that setting moon. It's the right time of the year. And he is, and, and I've got this gap, this 40-yard gap built. And he's coming right through the middle of it at 20 yards. And I get, I, I get my equipment all ready. And even though I had my camera and my camera arm, at the speed he was moving, I thought if I fooled around with my camera, he's going to be through my shooting lane and I'm going to miss it. I'm not going to get a shot. So I did not turn my camera on and filming, which you're like, I can't believe it, right? <laughs> but I did not. And I just went into kill mode, you know, so I got right where I wanted, and I grunted, and I went, man, and I stopped him, and I settled the pin right behind his shoulder, and I shot right through him, double lunged him. He spun around and headed right back the direction he came, and he hit the ground 40 yards away. That's awesome. Unbelievable. It was just, <laughs> it was just and and I know more. I saw. I, I could see him and see his belly and see his big old main beam. And you know that feeling. It's like ah, oh, it's incredible. Yep. About that time, I heard a really deep grunt. And in the hinge cut in front of me is about a 145 inch ten point pushing a doe. Oh jeez, oh Pete. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, this is just amazing. And then it was. I waited about 20 minutes. 
and the deer, you know, and I'm just looking, I got my binoculars and I'm checking out Brutus and he's actually laying right on his back. And if you want, I can send you a picture of that and you can maybe put that in the, it's amazing. He, the way he fell, he's laying right on his back, just like your dog when you go to rub their tummy, yep. he's doing that. Oh, wow. And, uh, it was just awesome. And it turned, you know, four-year-old, it felt first time in, uh, Everything was right, and so I paid a lot of attention to the to the weather. I paid attention to the temperature drop, the rise in pressure, which I'm not the only guy you'll hear talk about that. And I also paid attention to the moon position. And it's not that the moon position is everything, but when everything overlaps and you've got an area that I have never stepped foot in since since last since the Labor Day before that, and so I'm in that stand. And I'm, it's the first time in, and those deer didn't have a clue I was there. My, my, my scent control was good. I even had my ozonics running. And it didn't matter anyways because he was upwind of me, and, yeah, it was awesome. So that That's deer cool. turned out to, uh, to uh, you know, I go home and, and tell my wife, and she's all excited, and, and my dog Pepper, and we, we make and she takes some great pictures in the field, and uh, he was like 242 pounds live weight. Wow. On November 8th. Just a heck of a, just a cool, cool deer. Yeah, for sure. And uh, he had 11 inch on his right side. He had 11 inch D2 on his left side. It was 10 inches. I think he taped in right at 138 and some change, you know. So, I mean, just a super, super good deer and uh, just a lot of fun, you know. And so he, so he netted, I think, like 135 or 134. But That's still, awesome. you know, for me, he, he was a target buck. And it was, uh, and the coolest thing was I killed that deer that I had history with in an area that I set up to kill that deer. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. And out in front of you, you said you kind of created a travel corridor. So basically were you hinge cutting on each side and kind of trying to make an edge for those deer to uh, funnel through? Absolutely. Yep. I, I had a big, large hinge cutting with a, with a major edge. And then I had a wall of trees behind me cut, cut low, almost like a fence. Okay. And so from the direction that that, I knew that deer bedded and where he was coming from. And he was actually tailwinding, if you know that technique. Yep. And that shows just how darn comfortable he was to go through that area. Yep. But his goal was he had the tailwind to get, to get through that gap. And then he was going to end up being on the south end of that hinge cut. And I'm sure at that point he was going to move right into that hinge cut and check for, you know, scent check. Yeah. He was just looping around it to, to scent check that hole. Yep. I got you. So, you know, so he, a hundred yards away, he could have gotten south or right there. And so he was going to wait and get up there close where all those other bucks were, where all those licking branches were, and a tiny little micro food plot not 40 yards away. And I mean, all the conditions are there. I mean, it, when and if you do see it, you'll see the spot. And it's, it's, it's textbook for killing mature bucks. That's so cool. I love those it's stories. Always, it's always great when a plan goes together. Yep. You know, really, really is. I love those stories, man. Yeah, you know, and you know, trying to do that here in the state of Michigan, and uh, it, you know, these these four and a half and older deer are are very rare. You know, uh, there's more now than there's ever been, but they're still extremely rare. Right. And, and just getting that opportunity, you know, uh, as you know, just because they're living on the farm and you're getting pictures of them, doesn't mean he's going to be in front of you. You know, he could be living two miles away. You just don't know. Yeah. So. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking to try and do it again. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to try and, uh, you know, uh, pour cold water on my, I've had some pretty good success the last four or five years doing this exact thing, you know, having a target deer, setting up the stand and, and the situation and then going in when it's right. Right. And uh, besides all the habitat work and the history, 
going in when it's right, I think is, is, is the biggest contributor mm-hmm. to me killing that deer. For sure. Yeah. Well, cool. Like I said, you know, we're, we're coming up on time here and this is part yeah. one. I definitely want to do a part two when I get back from dropped and you, you'll you be uh, hunting already because I'll be back on like the 5th or 6th of October. So we'll get you on here again and maybe you'll have a, another deer down by then and we can talk about that. You know, um, it, it could be, you know, I, uh, my property is more set up for the rut, but I, I'm not going to say that if I'm out there trying to kill a doe and a and a 140-inch 10-point walks by, and I won't shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so you would. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, cool, Jake. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate this. And, you know, like I said, this will be part one, and we'll get another one going here. And, and uh, thanks for giving me about an hour and a half of your time. And, uh, You're welcome. It's always, it's always good talking with you, man. Same here. Yeah, you have a good a good week and have fun out there. Yeah, thank you, man. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, yeah, take care. And there you have it. I want to say thanks to Jake for coming on. And, you know, like I said before, this will be part one of probably a two-part series that I'm going to do with Jake. And uh, like I said before the podcast, I'm leaving Undropped in two days. And uh, you guys will be listening to this when I am actually dropped. So we're going out to northern Saskatchewan. We're going to be hunting moose and bear and doing a lot of fishing. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, we're going to spend 25 days in the bush and living out of a tent and uh, living off the land. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I am saddened to say that this will be the first October 1st bow season opener that I've ever missed. Um, But, you know, it's okay because I'm going on draft. I'm excited to do this, and the moose rut will be going like crazy. And uh, I'm excited to be up there with those guys and doing that. But I can tell you when I get back, I'm going to be going over to the one acre farm on the first cold front. Hopefully when I get back, that'll be coming through or one will be coming through anyway and uh, getting in the stand. And hopefully one of those deer will be uh, showing up. We will see. But again, I want to apologize that uh, you're not going to hear a new podcast for the next three weeks, but it'll be all right because right after I get back, I'm going to be uploading some new ones and and we'll be going throughout the fall. So, again, I appreciate everybody's feedback and uh, support. It's It's been overwhelming, and I really appreciate it. And um, thanks for listening, and thanks for all the downloads. And this is me signing off for a couple weeks, so I will talk to you when I get back from drop. Thanks, guys.